When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. It's time for Come and Talk It with your host, Michael Cargill, brought to you by Texas Law Shield. Over the last decade, Michael has championed and supported the rights of law-abiding Texans to own and use firearms. He is the owner of Central Texas Gunworks, a veteran of the United States Army, and has achieved national exposure in such prestigious media outlets such as Forbes Magazine, Fox Business News, CNN Money, AOL, BBC World News, Huffington Post, and the New York Times. Cargill vigorously defends lawful gun ownership in this country without regard to party politics. And now, here's Michael Cargill. Good day, Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Let's praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. All right, so mental health and gun control. If suicide was a true concern of gun control advocates, why are they not talking about the 22 veterans that commit suicide a day? So today we're going to talk with a a VA counselor, and he's going to tell us a lot. I actually got a chance to listen to him doing the presentation a few weeks ago, and I was I was intrigued, and I I thought this is something that the the pro gun movement needed to listen to. So, Dr. Scott Steiner is a clinical psychologist. He has been working with uh, working for the VA in Central Texas since 2001. His work with veterans is focused on understanding and treating the impacts of addictions and trauma. Dr. Steiner graduated from the University of Texas at Austin in 2002 with a specialized focus on the study and prevention of risk-taking behavior. And Dr. Steiner usually presents on issues locally related to military culture, addictions, and co-occurring mental health disorders. Most recently, he was was invited to present a mental health perspective for a panel discussion on gun policy and control and that's where we met. So let me bring to the mic Dr. Scott Steiner. Dr. Steiner, welcome to come and talk it, sir. Thank you, Mike, for welcoming me here. Absolutely. So, Dr. Steiner, you know, you you have this awesome presentation about you know mental health and the gun issue. And so, you know, I wanted to invite you because you know, listening to you a couple of weeks ago, and I when I when I listened to this presentation. I thought, you know, this this is something that the gun control, uh, the gun control movement, the pro gun movement, they really need to listen to this because you actually had a, a a unique perspective on what everyone's talk about, and that's mental health. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are some of the issues that we're missing? Well, first, I just like to thank you for being open enough to invite me in for this because. I think this is a big part of what I'm going to have to say has to do with the idea that there isn't enough dialogue across different disciplines, across different groups, people who may have and historically have differences. I think this is exactly what we need to be doing. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. And um, I guess I'll start just uh, by acknowledging that uh, as was apparent in listening to my introduction, my specialty is not necessarily in gun policy, but more on mental health. 
And as a result, I'm going to present statistics, some information, mostly things that I've gleaned from the internet, from research that's been done over time, from uh, people who uh, seem to have uh, something important to say and who are based often on research at various universities. So um, to get started with, uh, to sort of frame the discussion, I would like to just point out that one of the things that's really important to consider, um, this is coming out of a discussion called Six Things to Know About Mass Shootings in America by Frederick Lemieux. And one of the things he pointed out was that in the last 30 years of mass shootings in the, our country, basically from 1993 to 2003, um, that the United States had a total of about 78 mass shootings. And if you look uh, at the rates in the other 24 industrialized nations, the total for all of those nations is 41. So the United States has almost two times as many mass shootings as the total of all the 24 other nations that are industrialized that were included in the study. Um, the closest in terms of number of mass shootings was Germany with a total of seven. So again, notably, it's pretty significant difference uh, at, between the United States and Germany. Okay. as well as the other nations. And um, sort of a piece of this, and one thing that I uh, noted in the presentation that I gave was that uh, Mr. Lemieux or Dr. Lemieux pointed out that we need to consider when we're looking at statistics that uh, the FBI changed its definition and how it's tracking these types of events as of about 2013. So one of the things that happened was that before 2013, they had a definition and the tracking was based on the concept of mass shootings, which was where at least four or more people were killed in a single incident. Subsequent to that time, so after 2013, they started talking about active shooter incidents. Um, and and uh, according to the definition um, that they provide, it is that an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a confined and populated area. So. One of the things as we're talking about this, one of the things as other people, when you're consuming the statistics that are you hear or you see in the news, it's important to consider, are they comparing times before 2013 and after 2013 or not? Right now, the statistics I'll be providing are not going past 2013, uh, partly because of this issue. Okay. So... Um, one of the things in terms of the research uh, is just in general, criminal violence um, based on uh, research since 1993 overall in the last 30 years has been is down in terms of intentional homicide rates. They've decreased about uh, 50% since, since 1993. So crime is going down. If you look at just intens intentional homicide rates okay. based on what uh, that, so uh, someone who's intending to go out and kill someone. Uh, I don't so know far, I like you already because you, you're telling me that more guns equals less crime. Well, I don't know about that piece of it. Uh, that's not my area of specialty. I'll leave that to you and for other people to decide. But okay. um, I'll at least give these. That's where I'm going to. Uh, this is more, not my area of specialty. This is just what I'm hearing uh, from uh, gleaning through the research. So the other piece is just that there's an F the uh, FBI report in 2014 reported that school shootings are up 150% if we're looking at two different six-year time periods mm. from 2006 to 2000 I'm sorry 2000 uh, to 2006 uh, to two, and uh, 2007 to 2013. So what we're seeing is that over those two six-year periods an uh, overall increase in school shootings of about 150%. Um, if you look at mass shootings in general, not just school shootings, they are also in the on a rise. If you look at it over that 30-year time frame, um, 
If you look, for instance, from 1983 to 2011, the average number of days between school shootings was about 200. Uh, and then if you actually look more closely between 2011 and 2013, you're seeing that the events are now about 64 days between events. And as I pointed out in the uh, talk, we need to also consider that that's, those are two very different time ranges. And this is where when you're looking at statistics, you have to consider those types of details. So. Now, one thing that someone brought up, one issue I can see, and this is Christopher, he says, one issue I can see is the over-classification of veterans as mental Ill, mentally ill or suffering PTSD, which then restricts gun ownership. Well, there's certainly, uh, I don't know about whether or not people are using this as a basis to restrict gun ownership. I know that there's a conversation out there. Um, number one, there are a lot of mental health issues that veterans are struggling and suffering from, due in large part to the extremity of what they're called to do in their uh, duties. And um, so I haven't, uh, I, I don't know about the relative rates, but probably overall, I would say the overall rates of mental health issues are likely to be greater in veterans just because of the degree of stress that they're exposed to over time. Um, and I think one of the things that this highlights is this issue of if we start to label individuals as mentally ill, and if there's a conversation that we have out there about uh, we're going to take guns away, for instance, from people who are mentally ill, we need to have a much more refined conversation about that. It is not something we need to just reactively do because one of the things that will happen if we start saying, all right, we're going to start taking away guns sort of uh, in a relatively indiscriminate way from people who have histories of PTSD or depression where there are issues of violence that may occur towards self or others, then um, immediately probably you're going to start to see a decline in the reported, uh, the, the degree to which people come in for treatment. And so we need to be very conscious that if we're going to make any decisions about actually um, removing guns from people with mental health issues, that it is incredibly selective and cautious, uh, that it may be based on prior violent behavior um, rather than just because they have a mental health issue. So that could stigmatize it even worse. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we, and I, that's one of the issues that we need to be conscious of is that we don't overly stigmatize any one group in this. And then Pamela says that every one of the gun control advocates whom I know are indeed concerned about the 22 suicides committed each day by a veteran. There is no hiding sincere concern for that on the part of those who know that our country's lax gun laws are the main cause for another fact. And she says that deaths from gun violence in the U.S. are twice the total number from other countries who limit. And Pamela, I'd like to remind you that last year, uh, 2017, there were over 100 people that were killed in, on the 4th of July weekend in Chicago. And no one mentioned it. It wasn't talked about. There were no parades. There were no, there were no protests. There was no nothing about the 100 people that were shot in Chicago by, uh, by way of using firearms. Uh, and, and this was we're talking gang violence. So when we're talking about gun control. We always talk about the mental health issue, but we never discuss, you know, what about gang violence? What about the drugs and those issues that are causing people to use that tool, a firearm to commit whatever crime they need to commit to get more drugs or whatever it is. And our calling number is 512-643-LIVE. That's 512-643-5483. Come and talk. And we're talking with Dr. Scott Steiner. All right, so Dr. Steiner, uh, you're going on and you're, you're you, like I said, you have an awesome presentation. I, I really love it. You know, I learned a lot from you um, during your, your talk, you know, a few weeks ago. And, you know, 
and you, you have so much more to say, and I want to get through, you know, definitely make sure we get through most of it. Where was this talk? It was at the... Um, the I Act. Um, it, uh, the Barbara Bush Library. Correct. Yes, in uh, Bee Caves. Yeah, so which is a nice library, which we need to go sometime because they have a uh, a chess board. They have a chess board on the outside that's giant like giant chess, a giant oh, chess board set. This. Yes, and we need to go there and play chess sometimes. You know, I like to pe- battle chess. I'll take you down. Okay, we'll see. Mm-hmm. You're gonna learn today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doctor Steiner. So um, a few more points on the statistics, and then we'll move on. Uh, one thing just to say is to, that uh, James Allen Fox. Um, who is a criminologist, a criminology professor at Northeastern University in Boston, uh, in a recent NPR discussion, made the point that schools are safer today than they had been in previous decades. And he, I didn't have a chance to delve into all the research that he is basing those conclusions on, but for instance, uh, he was comparing that back in 19, um, I believe, 97 to 98, there were a total of four school shootings. And that, and again, if we're including that definition of four or more, um, uh, he argues that school shootings uh, were more frequent, more were more frequent in the past. Um, I think, and it's sort of highlighted in that conversation or that comment by another uh, listener is that um, in the bigger picture, in or outside of schools, um, we're not talking just school shootings. We need to be aware that about 2,700 children die each year from guns. Um, about 14,500 children sustain injuries each year. And disproportionately, this is affecting students of color. And I think that was highlighted in that last comment. That's right. And we need to keep in mind, and Derek Will says it perfectly, if someone is too dangerous to be free in society with all of their rights, then they shouldn't be in society. So if we think that they should not have access to firearms, then maybe we should take all of their rights away, not just that one tool. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Sound off on the news of the day with the Talk Poll. Online at Talk1370.com. Talk1370, the right choice. So we're talking with Dr. Scott Steiner, and he's a clinical psychologist, and we're talking about gun control and mental health. If suicide was a true concern of gun control advocates, then why are they not talking about the 22 veterans that commit suicide a day? And so Jen says, are we talking about gang violence here? Well, you know, you know, Jen, we we talk about everything. You know, I like to bring in gang violence. I like to talk about mental health also. Because I, I want to make sure that people understand that gun control in its essence is racist. And it all started uh, because of that. And then Rich Jackson says, I have a serious problem with using the term children. When talking about gun violence, I think if the statistic is broken down, it will show that the vast majority of the children in the doctor's statistics are 17 through 19 or in some statistics, even as high an age as 21 are included. Now, you know, Rich, 
just so you know, the governor, and we're going to start our countdown clock in September because the governor, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, mark my words, Governor Abbott, we're going to start a clock where he's going to next year, September the 1st, 2019, you're going to see the age limit rise for gun, gun um, purchase and maybe even gun possession or ownership. You're going to see something change. You're also going to see red flag laws imposed in the state of Texas come September the 1st, 2019. You know why that's going to happen? Because they're doing their interim study right now. They're having their secret meetings right now to discuss what they're going to do. So how is this going to affect those, you know, those young, young teenagers who are on the shooting teams, who are, you know, traveling together to different matches over the weekends? How is this going to affect them? How is that going to affect the young man that's on his, his parents' farm on the property doing his chores and things of that nature? So are we talking ownership? We're talking possession. Are we talking purchase? What are we talking about? Well, you know, the governor s says something's going to change come September 1st, 2019. And if you, unless you do something, it's going to change. And so our call-in number is 512-643-LIVE. That's 512-643-5483. Come and talk it. And we're talking with Dr. Scott Steiner, a clinical psychologist. Dr. Steiner. So um, the uh, person who wrote in about the age range, obviously we each get to define uh, what a child is, but the age range that we're seeing, some of these shootings are from age 11 all, all the way up to much older. But usually when we're talking about school shootings, we're talking about age 18 or under. Average age is about 17, uh, 16 to 17 uh, in what I recall from reading the data. So, And that's um, age of 17 is what now? That's the average age of the shooters that have been found uh, up to date. That's my recollection from having – I don't have that data immediately available to me. Are you that's sure about I, that? Because I think it's a little higher. Than 17 that's because uh, that means that you're you're telling me if that's the average age that means that we've had some shootings where people were like 13 and 14 and 15 we've had shooters. shooters who are age 11 yes right so because the majority of people that i know of that have done your mass shootings are we talking mass shootings or are we talking We're talking the mass shooting incidents so not, mass shooting not so incidents. much all in not all school shootings where it might be just someone out in the parking lot and it's not in or during the school or it's someone who's doing or committing suicide we're talking about more of the mass shootings as mass, mass shootings in a school mass shootings in schools yes okay let's do do a google search on that because i i'm thinking that's a lot higher than that that's you know usually right around the age of you know uh, maybe 20 or 21 or even higher than that maybe even the 30s um, we'll, uh, we'll see, see what the research uh, or what he's able to come up with, but that's okay. my recollection. All right. so, um, I wanted to move away from more of the statistics side of this and have a more just uh, thoughtful discussion about how to frame how we think about this. And I think one of the things that uh, troubles me most in listening to what I hear in the media is that the discussions tend to be overly simplistic. Um, there's uh, quotes of things like, guns don't, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Or... It's a mental health problem, or we need to get rid of guns, or it's violent media and video games. These are all examples of simple arguments that are made out there, and I think one of the things to be conscious of is while we may want to look at all of those points, we don't want to disregard any number of them. We don't want to get so locked into extreme views that we don't consider the multiple viewpoints. And so 
um, a big part of uh, my focus in having this discussion um, and what I focused on in my presentation earlier was just that we need to start embracing the complex rather than the simple. And um, as an, we have that allegory that many of us are aware of, of the three blind men uh, feeling an elephant and each in a different location. Um, one person, uh, one of the blind men says, an elephant is like a snake and obviously handling the trunk. Um, another of the three blind men says the elephant is like a wall as he's feeling the belly. Uh, and then another says the elephant is like a tree. And so uh, if I, what I believe happens a lot, and I see this whether we're talking about the mental health treatment I provide with veterans or um, whether we're talking about this gun issue uh, and mental health and guns and school shootings, that too many people get locked into one of these explanations and don't consider the whole. And that as we start to talk across multiple individuals, we actually get a greater picture of the overall situation. So I want to just use that as a frame as we're talking about this. So um, another element um, I'm just going to encourage is that we welcome the messiness that comes with multiple viewpoints. It is not easy to hold all these different viewpoints that we have. Um, and I think it's important for us to consider that when we're talking about multiple viewpoints, we're not just talking about viewpoints across individuals. We're talking about it also within ourselves. We often have conflicting feelings internally. And can we not just disregard, like have one dominant voice inside that says this is the way it should be and disregard all the other aspects of ourselves that say and have a difference of opinion because we've over time been exposed to many different life experiences, different cultures, and through those exposures, whether it's what our parents said versus what we heard in um, uh, spiritual context in church or something like that, that um, we often come and have multiple different viewpoints. So part of this practice starts with our ability to tolerate the differences internally, because if mm. we can tolerate those differences internally, we have a better capacity to actually listen to the differences that we hear in others. Hmm. And you know what? I, I kind of like Facebook a little bit because it gives me the opportunity to look at the people who I'm friends with, who I'm surrounded with, and it, it, it kind of exposes their their issues. Yeah. I think that that's, <laughs> that's that's certainly one uh, venue in which we can see a lot of oh, different. Opinions. Oh, we see a lot because I I see people just have a complete meltdown on Facebook and social media, and it, it just it's crazy. It's just it's just wild to me. Yep, there's a lot of difference. Um, along these lines, I want to. Uh, uh, there's a, a phrase that Hannah Arendt came up with uh, years ago. She was a famous thinker. Uh, she was a part of experiencing the Holocaust herself as a Jew. Um, uh, she called in the term called the banality of evil. And she said, in essence, uh, Lindsay Stonebridge is a, a scholar who uh, has been studying and reading her work for many years, said, in essence, the banality of evil, meaning the sort of commonality of evil, is the inability to hear another voice. And again, mm -hmm. coming back to that idea of whether it's the voices of others or our own differences internally. And that if we get down to the very simple level, we need to start considering that the inability to listen to others, to consider multiple viewpoints, actually is a condition that sets up hostility, sets up problems and conflict. So what you're saying is we're not, we're not taking that time to listen to other people who have different viewpoints in our own. Correct. And if we start to do that, uh, whether we have people who on the far left, far right, whether it's people of different spiritual backgrounds, there's something to be said for learning to listen. It doesn't mean we have to agree with all the things that are said, but also just that we're willing to listen and also see that every person's viewpoint comes out of a personal history. 
uh, they are entitled to that. If you actually learn and listen to the stories that people tell, that uh, you'll start to find out why did they come to that personal viewpoint. So I think that's important to consider in this uh, discussion. It's funny you say that because I was listening to the hearings that this week. Uh, they had a, a few um, discussions at the Capitol, at the Texas Capitol, and they were talking about you know red flag logs and some other things. And the people that actually testified, I was really interested in their story and why they made that 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 trek to the Capitol. You know, why did you want to go to the Capitol and, and let your voice be heard? I listened to quite a few stories. One lady had a story where she talked about her son who was in college in a dorm room or apartment or somewhere. And she started an organization, Be Smart, and which is I think is a great idea. And I think mm -hmm. it's, an, it's something that. You know, we really need to pay a close attention to and the NRA and it basically was the, basically the steps to what the NRA teaches. You know, uh, you see something, say something. It's it's there's a lot in that. And so basically what happened is her son was in this room and he was in college. He grabbed a friend's gun and was playing around with the gun and ended up shooting himself and killing himself. And she was upset by that, rightfully so. But, you know, and I look at that in a different kind of way. I look at that in the way of, well, you as a parent didn't teach your, your kid gun safety. I look at it like that a little bit. Um, and then also in a way, if you don't know anything about a firearm, then you shouldn't touch it. You need to learn first before you put your hands on it. And then also the person that allowed him to put his hands on the gun should have made sure that the gun was unloaded before he allowed him to even touch the gun. So I look at that a lot of different ways. A lot of people pay response, you know, should take responsibility for, you know, what happened that day. And so, but that issue should not be the reason why we impose gun control laws. And there are more stories like that. But go ahead, Dr. Steiner. So um, along those lines, I think we need to, with what I've been saying, is this idea that we need to listen and suspend the judgments of others as we listen. If we, it's too often that we all have this uh, experience that when we're listening to someone, we're already formulating our argument, or we're we're waiting for a time to interrupt them, and we're not really listening the whole message, and that we take time to be patient to listen. That's an essence as we're having this discussion, and all the different people who are uh, listening to this consider that there are multiple viewpoints, and we stay open rather than make wrong another person and start from that frame. We need to really start from the frame of. Uh, respect and consideration of the other. Um, uh, we need to be aware of, as we're talking about implementing uh, plans, this idea of considering the unintended consequences. Like, as we were talking earlier, if you're talking about, oh, well, we need to address this as a mental health problem, take the guns away from uh, people who have mental health issues that are pot uh, potentially violent, we need to consider that by doing so, potentially, potentially that will reduce how many people come forward and admit that they have mental health issues and won't talk about it and, because they're afraid that their guns are going to be taken away. And so these are things to factor in as we're talking about this. Um, and just a general point is that the more extreme the position we take, we need to be aware that, you know, um, there tends to be a backlash. People uh, polarize when they hear one viewpoint. It tends to lead to the other to polarize in the opposite, and then it discourages discussion. I think that if we can frame and start the discussion from I think or believe you would think about it this way um, uh, and from an understanding of another person, why they're, they're uh, coming to that viewpoint, then I think we start on a better frame. That person feels heard. Then we can delve into our own viewpoints on any given issue. Um, 
there's an idea you, uh, of, uh, from the Buddhists, they talk about finding the middle way. Um, and uh, we also have phrases like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that every one of us has maybe an ideal of how we would like things to turn out, but can we be willing to come around to some compromise that we try to all come together as a nation to try to stop uh, these events? And whether we're talking about the extreme events, the school shootings or the mass shootings, I think it's also to keep in mind that that's, uh, those are very rare events where the, we need to be more conscious of the general violence that's out there that occurs with guns or even without guns. Like um, gang violence? Correct, yeah. Um, and, 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 and Go ahead. And honestly, that's why I, I always go back to the, the sense that you know, gun control uh, only affects when you, you impose new laws, new rules for, for firearms or anything. You know, it doesn't have to be firearms. It could be anything. That's actually going to affect the, the people of color uh, the most because they're the people that are less likely to be able to uh, be able to hire an attorney to be able to fight something that is unjust or whatever. People that are well off will be able to get an attorney and find a particular case uh, to be able to you know defend that charge. But when people of color you know are charged with something, you know that, that's not the case. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh Oh, I was just going to say, I, I saw a really interesting thing online today that was talking about how uh, saying, saying something that is uh, punishable by a fine is basically saying it's only illegal for poor people. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, it's uh, pretty uh, understandable to consider that those who have access to money have greater access to things in general. Uh, they can say more than people who uh, don't have money. They have other, a lot of protections, whether it has or relates to guns or other things. Okay. So um, in, a, in addition, just in this, I'd like to keep in mind this idea that we need to start small and build. Uh, if we move towards big uh, uh, attempts to shift policy, sometimes that's going to create more of that backlash we were talking about. So how do we start small and gradually build? I think there's movements out there that are trying to look more into actually gun research because up to this point, there's been a lot of uh, prohibitions and uh, freeze on gun research. And if we're going to try to affect change in anything, whether we're talking about cancer, diabetes, other mental health issues, if we don't have research, research helps to guide uh, the discussion. It helps to help us make better policy. All right, our call-in number is 512-643-LIVE. That's 512-643-5483. Come and talk. We're talking with Dr. Scott Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about gun control. If suicide was a true concern of gun control advocates, why are they not talking about the 22 veterans that commit suicide a day? This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talkin'. Yo, what's going on, guys? It's Chad Jones here, and I get my gun news from Michael Cargill on Come and Talkin'. Listen to Talk 1370 anytime, anywhere on the Radio.com app. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right, so we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist. And let's go to some comments here. Uh, Melvis Riser says, far more die from suicide by firearm than homicide. And you're right, Melvis. Also, more people die from uh, abortion and more blacks are actually 
uh, are losing their lives by way of abortion, but we're not standing in front of abortion clinics and saying, hey, you know, let's stop that. Uh, we all should be doing that. You're killing the black population. I guess that's not important to you. Most people live in a bubble with no real life experiences like college folks, just saying. And then Mike Peters says, look at New York. Governor Cuomo stopped the NRA and USCCA from selling CCW insurance now. Yeah, because the people that actually need it the most are the ones that, you know, and, and that's New York. So that's a whole nother topic. And we'll be here all day long, Mike, you know, talk about New York and what they're doing wrong. And my, Max, uh, Max says, Heidi Ho from SMIBville. Well, Heidi Ho, Max. And hello, New Mexico. And hello, California. What's going on, Montana? And how you doing up there in Washington State? All right, we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist. Dr. Steiner. So uh, I was just talking about the importance of considering the complex. And so I think as we're thinking about, and I'm going to start talking about what are the factors that seem to be uh, in common for these school shooter incidents, I want to use the metaphor of the perfect storm. And in that movie, uh, if for those of you who have uh, watched it, it talks about how when they try to explain what happens, how there's a mul all these multiple factors that came together to produce that storm. And when we're talking about extreme events, whether it's mass shootings in or outside of school, these are incredibly rare extreme events. Um, one quote or one statistic um, was that uh, there's an average of about one, uh, during a certain time frame, an average of one school shooting uh, a year. We're talking about four or more people killed and um, in a total of 100,000 schools that are out there. So um, I want that uh, people to keep that in mind, that it's a rare event. And when we're looking at this and when I'm talking about this, we're really going to be looking at factors that seem to come together to predict uh, the likelihood that someone will take an act like this. Any one of these or just a few of them don't necessarily mean that we've got someone who's going to do it. Um, Dr. Peter Langman, um, uh, has, who's a specialist in uh, this area, uh, said that there is no single easily identifiable profile. We can't come up with a single profile. If you look in the addictions world, there's this idea of the addictive personality, and yet if you look at the research, there's no research that shows any consistent research, pro any profile personality-wise that produces addiction. Uh, or substance use issues. So we need to keep that in mind, that uh, it's a combination of multiple factors. The other thing I want to consider is a technical idea from psychology called the fundamental attribution area, error. And uh, in essence, just to unpack it, it's just the tendency to attribute behavior to personal characteristics and minimize awareness of contextual factors, meaning environmental factors. So an example of that might be if you see a video, a short snippet of a video, and this guy, uh, there's a dog in the video, a guy comes in and kicks the dog. Uh, most people seeing that short snippet of a video would say, start making exp uh, all types of nasty accusations about this person's personality, what's wrong with him. Um, if you then rewind the video a bit, watch it from earlier on, and you see dog come, there's a man with a boy, dog comes up and bites the boy, dog runs off, guy runs off and then kicks the dog, you suddenly start considering the situation very differently. So that's what we mean, that if we don't have much information, we tend to focus in on the individual and something about their personality as an explanation for the behavior without considering that there's a lot of factors environmentally that play into it. Yeah, and going back to what you said about uh, not being able to profile someone for an addictive personality, I saw a study in rats. I know it's not people, but uh, a study in rats 
they found that when rats were isolated and didn't really have a, a world to go explore and play in, that they would easily get hooked on cocaine. But when rats were in a social environment, it was really hard to get them addicted to cocaine. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had it was the rat, they call it the rat park study. So it's where, like they have to have a purpose. Exactly. And if their life is not meaningful, you've got a rat in a cage with nothing to do other than eat and occasionally uh, and not stimulated with interactions with other rats, uh, places to climb and play, they start to use drugs uh, more likely. So if, we, so if we give people jobs and give them a purpose, then we could actually, you know, peel back our drug problem. And which will actually make our gun violence problem go down or violence problem. Perhaps. And all of that would we'd have to see over time if that plays out. But I think if we look at it as this is one factor, because when you look at addictions, it's not so uh, that the person who brought that information uh, sort of to the general awareness of the public um, was highlighting one small aspect of what we understand. But there is a large societal effect. And that's the, that your point is well taken in that regard. Now, Derek Willis, Derek, Derek Wills says that mental health has such an unjustified stigma attached to it. The vast majority of those with mental illness are not violent, yet current law will strip away rights from those who have not committed a crime or even pose a threat of violence. Yeah, and the research does support that the mass number, uh, the large number of people who have mental health issues do not commit violence. Um, There may be an increased rate for some in some categories. We're going to be talking about some of those uh, areas where you see an increased uh, risk of violence. But as a general principle, that uh, statement is correct. And I do want to add that if you're, you know, if you're having problems, something is going on in your life, there is, you know, there is help out there. You can actually give a call to 1-800-273-8255, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and that's 1-800-273-8255, because 22 veterans are committing suicide every single day. And there is help out there. There is someone that you can talk to. And we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist, Dr. Steiner. So um, one of the things, to, as we're talking about the shooters, I'm going to break this down by thinking about shooters, and then we'll talk about environmental factors. So for shooters, one of the things to consider just demographically is that 95% of them are male. Four out of five are white. And the average uh, um, age is 17 years of, uh, of age. And this is according to the National School Safety Center. Uh, uh, that's where I got that source. So, so if you're saying we need to raise the age limit, then we also need to do something about the uh, the color limit as well. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're going to do one, do the other. But go ahead, Dr. Steiner. So um, the other elements that, and this is again from the same source, the National School Safety Center pointed out that there are a number of uh, common um, traits that we see or experiences in shooters. Uh, one is that we see they have a history of a violent temper. Um, they've had a, they have uh, bought a weapon, brought a weapon to school. Uh, so there's been history of, of having, bringing weapons, whether knives or guns to school. Um, they've had serious disciplinary inf- problems, um, tend to be sort of the fringe of their peer groups, often loners. Um, uh, they often bully peers or are an abusive partner in their relationships. So domestic violence is a predictor. Um, they're often preoccupied with weapons, specifically weapons that are designed to kill people, not weapons that are designed to kill animals or other things like that. Um, they've often had a history of being expelled from school, a history of cruelty to animals, 
a lack of family supervision, often families not around and available to help to guide, uh, maybe in, in, in line with the Be Smart program, one of the things that they promote is this idea of uh, safely locking up the guns so that the children do not have the ability to gain access to it, or at least having a gun lock on them to help to uh, prevent their ability to use those weapons. Um, and last, last two in this, uh, from this uh, source is that they prefer violent themes in the media. That doesn't mean the media is necessarily causing them to be violent because the research doesn't necessarily suppo uh, support very well that exposure to video games and violent media leads to violent actions. It but, doesn't but we've learned ever since Cain and Abel that they're just evil people in this world. And there's just we're just, just going to be evil. And it, we can't just say that um, there's mental illness and that's going to be the issue all by itself. They're just some people that are just really evil. And we need to remove those people from society. So uh, a portion of this uh, that I'll come to in a second talks about this issue. Like often when we're talking about evil, I mean, again, we can put evil on a whole spectrum from whether we're talking about white to black and all the gray in between. We might talk about the extreme evil. Oftentimes we're thinking of people like psychopaths, people who don't appear to have any signs of empathy. Um, they don't feel the feelings of others. And therefore, when they do something to another, they don't necessarily have any guilt or remorse about what they do. And we might put the category of pure evil if, uh, again, that's a, um, the perspective anyone can take necessarily in that category. But I think we also need to consider this idea from Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil, that it, we it's all on a spectrum and that we need to consider that sometimes if I am, uh, it's a violent act just to not listen to another person at times and to consider what their uh, viewpoints are and, and with, a ser with seriousness. So, um, yeah, that's my thoughts on that. Okay. Um, the last, uh, and you've been talking a lot about suicide, uh, and the other big factor that we see, the last one to mention, is that uh, uh, Children who have done these often are, have signs of depression or were suicidal at some point. And so that's a big target, a big sign to watch for. And this is, uh, of the, all these things in terms of uh, actual mental health uh, discussions uh, and mental health diagnoses, that's the only thing on this that talks about mental health. And I think that's important to note. Now, Rich Jackson says, I think we are forgetting that there is a difference between criminals don't obey laws and mental illness. The minimum age of possession could be raised to 99, and it wouldn't change much, particularly when someone doesn't fear the consequences either due to their belief that they are above the law or if they don't expect to survive. Correct. Many of them don't expect to survive. They may be planning on killing themselves so they don't feel like they have anything to lose. Hmm. Um other elements, and this is not necessarily coming from that source. This is more coming from a variety of different sources. Um, the other elements that we commonly see for shooters, and this gets at some of the environmental factors as well as some traits. Uh, first, that many of them are traumatized. Um, uh, in a study that uh, Dr. Claire Alili uh, did with autism, she found that out of a population of 75 individuals who committed mass shootings, 8% were autistic. But uh, the thing that she made a point to say is that all of those kids that were uh, did commit this had all gone through uh, and experienced child abuse, neglect, 
physical, sexual, or some other form of abuse. So it's important to keep this in mind that it's uh, these ind are individuals who are suffering with something, uh, and it's a combination of factors if we just look at that one piece. Mm. Um, we're also seeing increasing rates of narcissism in our culture. Uh, Dr. Jean Twinge out of the San Diego State University has done a lot of research showing incre increasing rates in our culture in general of depression and suicide, anxiety, things like that um, over the years. But also she's showing increasing rates of narcissism, and those rates are particularly high in young people. Um, we can look at factors like social media, uh, how many likes do I have, uh, everyone's focus on me, 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 and how I'm perceived by others. My uh, This idea of self becomes very narrow, and uh, their uh, view, whether or not they are liked by their peers, becomes less about meaningful engagement with the world, you know, whether it's school, where am I going to go as a career, how am I involved spiritually, it's much more about these seemingly superficial things about how many likes on Facebook or other elements like that. So I must be that weird guy because I, I love it when people hate me. I, I get hate. I get so much hate mail. I get hate phone calls. I get hate postcards to my house. You know, and I actually, I, I thrive on that. You love the attention, Mike. I do. Because they think about me. They actually take the time to write a nasty hate message and mail it to my house. Yeah, you're inside yeah. their head. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, it's like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, you're anti-gun and I don't, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry. Um. Along the lines, uh, one of the things that we see with narcissism is that in so individuals are. Yeah, I'm not going. I'm not going there. <laughs> We're moving on. Um, people who are narcissistic are, uh, often what they you see is that they have a hypersensitivity to rejection and perceive slights. Their every little thing bothers them and easily triggered. Yes, easily triggered by things. Um, if it has anything to do with, uh, a, uh, they believe, a reflection on themselves. So other areas that we do see some incidents, greater incidents of um, uh, school shootings, uh, people who had histories of paranoia and uh, psychosis, oftentimes when we're talking about psychosis, uh, we're talking about things like schizophrenia. There was some suggestion that the uh, school shooter at Virginia Tech may have been schizophrenic. Um, so these it, narcissistic kids that are easily triggered by any kind of criticism that would make it pretty hard for anybody or even themselves to take a look at maybe their shortcomings and then be able to uh, fix them? Yeah, I mean, the, oftentimes people who are narcissistic are so focused on the external factors. They are looking for scapegoats for their problems. They're not looking at themselves. They're, there's too much difficulty to look at self. They often, uh, mm -hmm. not all in all cases, but many believe actually have fundamental beliefs that there's something wrong with them and they protect or defend against it. And so they tend to focus or blame others. We could say that at some level, this is a, a contribution to things like racism, to sexism, other types of uh, tendencies to scapegoat others. All right, so Jen says the Parkland shooter, the Santa Fe shooter, they were both cowards and did not shoot themselves. They are both still very much alive, and that is not going to discourage any others who want to do the same thing. Um, John says with the uncertainty of any profile in red flag schemes, how many false positives are going to revoke rights from innocent citizens? And, you know, I say, hey, you know, let the purge begin. 
You know, and, and Rich Jackson says, Michael, the reason that they hate you is you are an educated, well-spoken, outspoken, independent, conservative black man. You're not par- you're not parading the party line that as a black male, you should be dependent on the government to tell you what to think. You know what, Rich? I am narcissist and I agree. <laughs> We're talking with Dr. Rich Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist. This is Michael Cargill and you are listening to Come and Talk. This is State Representative Jonathan Stickland, and you are listening to Come and Talk It on Talk 1370. Welcome back to Come and Talk It, and now here's Michael Cargill. All right, so we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist. And Max says, hey, can we please get the zombie apocalypse over with already and make America great again? You know what, Max? I say let that purge begin. All right, so we're talking. <laughs> now that we got that out of the way, we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist, and we're talking about gun control and we're also discussing, you know, mental health aspects of it. You know, 22 veterans actually commit suicide a day. You know, I served 12 years in the Army, and there's so many people that I come across that, uh, that served in the military, have mental health issues, maybe PTSD or whatever. And it's – I don't think we're taking – we're not taking care of our veterans enough. It's sad that here we are in the capital of Texas, Austin – and that today, Sunday, on a day like this, if you are having mental issues, you're having an issue, period, and you're a veteran and you want to get some help, you have to – you get routed to actually, you know, Temple or Waco. You can't get help here in Austin, and that's something that we need to get fixed, and we, we need our – we need our local – our elected officials to help us with this issue. You know, even driving here from my house to the studio today – you know, I, I went past about five or six little homeless camps where people, you know, are set up, you know, either on an overpass, you know, on 183 and, oh man, I can't even think of the road right now. Cameron? Yeah, Cameron Road, Dessau, and then also on 71. I mean, God, it's just right there, right there on 71, right at 71 and Congress Avenue. You have people that are camped out, and it's uh, what's the temperature today? Let's think about that. The temperature, it's like a hundred degrees today. That'll make you go crazy in itself. It it will. It really it's seriously. And so, you know, they're not getting the health that they need, but then our elected officials are so busy traveling around the country, the world, talking about other issues outside this city and not focusing on the issues that we have here locally. So we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist, Dr. Steiner. Well, and I just since I work at the VA, I will say that it's it would be advantageous the, uh, that we had support to, and there's been efforts that have been made over the years to work towards bringing more uh, access locally. But currently, the access is, as you said, up in Temple and Waco predominantly. We do have some limited hours on the weekend, but it is limited, unfortunately, since this is a purely outpatient uh, VA clinic. 
Um, so back to the, I want to, we've been talking about a lot of the more characteristics of the shooters. I want to shift briefly to talking about some of the environmental factors. We've talked about how historically more of the historical factors that are common in these individuals is that they've had histories of, um, parental, parental neglect, like physical or emotional neglect, um, parental abuse, verbal, physical, and sexual. There's been histories of domestic violence in the home, um, victimization. And we're talking about, for instance, in gang culture, um, bullying and ostracism by peers. These are often commonly reported for these individuals. Um, these things all affect, just like we look at veterans and how the extreme events that they go through in war or in other circumstances can cause or contribute to PTSD or depression. These individ are individuals that are going through and experiencing high degrees of stress, um, often over prolonged periods of time, and that shapes the psyche. It shapes the mind. It affects how they see others and their openness to seeing that others out there are compassionate or caring. If they don't feel like people are compassionate or caring, it's a lot easier to go attack or hurt others. If And so I think that speaks to sort of an antidote, uh, which is how can um, we have people who are reaching more out to these individuals. How can we have more mental health services, which are vastly underfunded in schools that we have, for instance? Um, there's, uh, I think there was a statistic that there's one school counselor for every 500 students oftentimes, and that is completely woefully inadequate. So uh, I think that's really important to consider as we're talking about this. Um, so... Um, do we have a culture right now that is, uh, it's uh, historically our culture is very individualistic and competitive. It's a, uh, sometimes been referred to as the culture of self, where the focus is on oneself, one's needs, one's uh, desires, one's wants. Um, and that entitlement uh, and focus on self means I have to have less empathy, less concern for others in order to pursue what I want. Um, and this cultural emphasis on being famous and uh, I heard that there was a uh, Derek had had a comment that was very relevant to this. Yeah, Derek Wills with Lone Star Gun Rights commented, "What about the narcissist aspect? Surely the media plastering their name and face for a couple weeks plus helps play into their fantasy of fame." Yeah, and and uh, there's a when we were looking at the experts who were talking about this, they said that there's a cultural emphasis on being famous. And when there's all this news propagating this person's name, their face, this becomes a way, if they can't gain notoriety in a positive way, they will often gain it in a negative way. You'll see this with kids just in your home in general. If they're not getting adequate emotional uh, re uh, relationship attention from parents, they will often start acting out in a negative way. Any attention is better than no attention. Yeah, when there's school shooting, CNN will drop everything and talk about it basically 24 hours a day they'll talk about the shooter they'll talk about the kill count they'll talk about the shooter's history their family everything and then they go back to hating trump <laughs> and then we've got this internet and social media situation which propagates this information virally at dizzying pace which essentially then makes it so accessible what even if you didn't watch the tv you're going to find out on your twitter feed or in some other way mm -hmm. so and this supports that desire for notoriety and, if nothing else, a desire for infamy um, for now, some of these individuals who feel like they're ostracized, they're not seen, they don't, they, they're not, others don't care about them, and they're looking for some way to get back at the environment, at the people who maybe they feel, whether it's uh, contributing to their suffering. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten this a little bit, but uh, Donald had a question, and I'm going to change it around a little bit. You ever think about giving a three-minute presentation to the Capitol? 
That's hard. Three minutes. <laughs> I mm. think that would be very hard in three minutes. Three minutes sure. is very difficult. Yeah. You can't really get much uh, complexity across in three minutes. And if that's the, all the time that we're given. And I think this was this had the Governor Abbott's attempt to address the shooting down in Santa Fe was woefully inadequate. He, there's this urgency within the political sphere to handle things incredibly quickly, to just convene a few people very rapidly and come up with some. And the sense of, oh, well, I did something rather than taking time deliberately. Well, he's, he's, over trying time. To, he's trying to run for president. So he's 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 trying to make his mark so he can become the next president of the United States. So that's why, you know, that's and it, happening. And it speaks to a lack of patience patience in our culture to address these larger complex issues that we don't want to rush in based on pet theories about how best to do this. It is important to consider multiple voices and take the time to consider the research and all of these different factors as we move forward in, in policy related to guns or school, uh, trying to protect schools, raise money for school counselors, things along those lines. Dwayne says, so why can't vet simple, a vet simply use any health care provider and bill uh, the VA for it? You know, how hard would that be to allow? Well, I mean, that gives us in a whole other conversation about the Veterans Choice Program and things along those lines, and that's not necessarily what we're here for. Um, the, they can, veterans are able to get access to outside care through the Veterans Choice Program. Historically, there's been some challenges with the rollout of that. It's not people are not able to get out uh, and get the care as quickly as they uh, desire sometimes or need. It's basically based on the idea that people are, if they're more than 40 miles away from a VA uh, they have the right to go and seek someone locally for care, or if they're unable to be seen within a certain time frame, then they also have the right to go and seek care elsewhere. And Jen says the previous high school shooters knew what they were doing, and have y'all seen their videos? They get fan mail, they get money, and et cetera. So, like, even while they're locked up in jail right now, people are putting money on their books. They have girlfriends, you know, people that are actually in love with them right now. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the it's particularly the original major school shooting uh, with Columbine has inspired a tremendous amount of these sh shootings. And you'll hear people describe the shooters as heroes, idols, martyrs of God when they talk about uh, – and often these are, the, these are the individuals who are doing these other school shootings. These aren't just people in general. You look at their – um, uh, whatever, whether it's on their computers, uh, their comments, their writings and journals, these are the types of things that they'll say about those individuals. So they have idealized these individuals who, uh, because of these impacts, uh, and it fits with their own hate and anger. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, it even goes back decades. You look at a lot of these same types of things were happening with Charles Manson uh, when him and his family committed those murders, and, and we had, you know, far less reaching uh, you know, social media or anything like that. It was, it was just the, uh, the nightly media at that time. You didn't even have really the 24-hour news cycle. So just the fact that it was even prevalent back then, uh, it's only going to be extrapolated at this time period where you do have access to anything at your fingertips at any second of the day. Yeah, it's just going to increase it. All right. Um, so just along those lines, one of the things that we see, for instance, with suicide is that um, if uh, within schools or in other ways a suicide is uh, made known to the larger populace, you see a copycat phenomenon. You see more people start committing the same thing, and you'll see these clusters, suicide clusters. Well, essentially this is what's happening here is that we, when one person does an extreme event, it lowers the threshold for other people to do extreme events. It makes it easier. You have all the – they sort of paved the way in a very – gory and horrible uh, endeavor to making this happen more easily. Mm. So 
Um, just in general, to, and if we're talking about the environment in general in our culture, we're seeing, uh, and this is both when over time as well as compared to other countries, increasing rates of anxiety and depression in our culture as a whole. As I mentioned before, sort of an under-resourcing of mental health in general. Um, and we have an issue where there's easy availability of guns and weapons in our culture compared to any other culture out there. And that is one of the factors that is likely contributing to this. Is it an only factor? No. And we don't want to localize one source only. Yeah, and Jen says, absolutely. Chair Moody, during the hearing, said in an ominous, diabolic voice, so we do nothing? When Jerry Patterson said that it's a bogus idea that making more gun laws will do nothing. You know, so, you know, creating more gun laws, we see what this has done in Chicago. The more you create, the worse you're going to make that situation. Last year, on the 4th of July, over 100 people were shot in Chicago. And we are not doing anything about it. We're not saying anything. We're not taking care of that situation there. So, you know, we need to do something. Maybe we should arm let a lot of people, the, 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 the good people of Chicago, to protect themselves. All right, we're talking with Dr. Steiner. He's a clinical psychologist. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about gun control. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Peace, this is Maj Ture. You're listening to Come and Talk It Radio with Michael Cargill. Listen to Talk 1370 anytime, anywhere with the all-new Radio.com app. Check your phone's app store or visit Talk1370.com slash app. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. I know a place. I'm going to my happy place. That's right. Right after I leave here. (laughs) All right, so we're talking with Dr. Steiner, and he's a clinical psychologist. I'm going to my safe space where all the smiling faces are. And we're talking mental health. We're talking gun control. Uh, we're talking about the 22 veterans that commit suicide a day. And Dr. Steiner, you know, there's, says that there's some things that we can do in schools when it comes to um, in schools when it comes to mental health. So uh, in sort of delving into this, I think one thing to really uh, consider first, it's coming back to something I said earlier, which is that um, there's not been historically a ton of research on gun violence, and that's been prevented uh, by the um, government. Uh, And so because of that, these are proposals that are based on what do we know from a mental health standpoint about helping to reduce distress, how to tend to and take care of a community. And so that's uh, where these perspectives are coming from. So this comes from a a paper that uh, Matthew Mayer, Dr. Matthew Mayer and Dr. Shane, I think it's Jimerson, um, uh, put together called A Call for Action to Prevent Gun Violence in the United States of America. And um, boiled down, uh, the essential message of this is that we need to start working on softening rather than hardening schools. So there's been a big dialogue in the uh, in the uh, world around this idea of bringing in guns, bringing in um, uh, ways to uh, metal detectors, things along those lines, um, entry exit points. And while I'm, this isn't to say that there may not be um, a rationale for some of those. Right, hold on, because I'm going to ask you to come back to that. Um, Jen says, Dr. Steiner, during the hearing, 
last week at the Texas Capitol, it was mentioned that family members ratting out someone they think poses a danger to themselves or others and having the idea that now it is known that this person's guns will be taken away may cause the person to explode further into a rage of anger due to the reporting of the alleged condition of being a threat to themselves or others. So others said it should be a strongly suggested individual choice rather than focusing uh, or forcing the removal of one's guns. Well, and I think we have to consider, has there been any history for this individual of violent actions within the school? To what degree do they show any of those uh, 10 warning signs that the National School Safety um, Report provided? You know, so I think we don't want to jump to conclusions. Different people, I think it's really careful. We need to be careful that different people react differently to different circumstances. Some might react perhaps in the way that she's proposing. Others may react very differently. And so I think it's also we need to not jump to the conclusions. We've got a school shooter on our hands based on a few uh, characteristics that are showing up. We need to respond to these as kids that are suffering and struggling in some way and something's gone wrong over the course of their lives uh, and how do we reach out to them? And that's in essence what this uh, proposal is about. And it's largely about targeting the school climate itself. Okay, then back to the schools and the security and tightening up the security for the schools. Yeah, so um, part of this first was just how do we foster safe, open relationships with adults? And from the janitor all the way up to the principal, right? How do we create a culture where the people are, uh, those individuals who are frightened, angry, ostracized, who may be showing any of these uh, warning signs are reached out to by someone. Um, And these elements are already present in the schools to some degree, but when there's not enough, there's too many other demands and pressures on the schools and there's not enough mental health providers in there, they don't often have enough support to be able to adequately do this. Um, They talked also about prioritizing not just academic curricula, but also social and emotional curricula. Uh, Basically, uh, learning that focuses on how to have uh, good relationships with one another, how to show concern for those who are suffering or struggling rather than just ostracizing or distancing further. And emotional uh, curricula that are focused on how do we handle emotionally stressful or difficult events. Um, uh, They also advocated for reducing punishing punishing and exclusionary approaches to problematic behavior. And as they meant by that, for instance, there's a tradition oftentimes when someone comes to school with a weapon that they are expelled from that school. And they're saying, no, we need to not respond in that way, for instance. And not just in that extreme circumstance, but actually take a more nuanced approach of reaching out to the child um, and try to um, help intervene uh, before something happens. Um, understanding that there's li- they're likely suffering with uh, um, something uh, and, can- and by doing so they could potentially help to reduce or prevent that. Um, going along the lines of what I said before, there's a real uh, urgency to upstaff the school mental health providers. As I mentioned, uh, one, to every- one uh, counselor essentially to every 500 students is not adequate. Um, that we need to be prepared for, those schools need to be prepared for having mental health referral networks so that they know if the circumstances are more extreme than the school is able to handle, that they can do outreach to other providers. Um, uh, also talking about devoting resources to preventing bullying, discrimination, and harassment. This sort of goes along the lines of that sort of social and emotional curricula. Um, how do we have a culture that helps to reduce that? 
Um, obviously, there's a lot. Each school in different places where we're talking about, you've mentioned Chicago a number of times. If we're talking about Chicago, the, the circumstances there are very different than we're talking about here in Austin and in the schools. So uh, the, the approaches need to be nuanced. Um, there needs to be, within the school, prompt attention to suicidal and homicidal ideation so that there's these people are reached out to immediately and quickly. It's not about shaming. It's about providing help and support, not about stigmatizing and not about labeling these kids. Because as we said before, you, the more you propagate this information out in the public, the more it could potentially stimulate others to think about doing similar things. So getting back to that comment that was made earlier, we don't need to put this out in a very public domain. Um, uh, that's, there's risks to doing that. Um, risk to the individual, it will then further reduce. This is that idea of the unintended consequences. You start doing that, you're going to have fewer students willing to talk about and report that they are having thoughts of killing themselves or others. The more you punish them, the more it discourages openness. And so we need to be really conscious. That's the reason for this idea of less punishment, more softening, more response and openness. We all like to be responded to with respect and kindness, and we open up in that context. If I come in with hostility, punishment, we're less likely to respond. And it doesn't mean punishment doesn't have a place. It just means that we need to de-emphasize that because that's what's emphasized more in a lot of these approaches. And sort of along these lines, there's a movement called restorative justice uh, where um, this empowers students to try to resolve conflict amongst themselves, usually with the support of mental health providers that are there. You get the victim and the person who perpetrated something together, and the, the, oftentimes the perpetrator has to listen to the impacts that this had for a person. And there's an effort not to just shame them, but to, to help them understand what's going on, how does this have an effect on their lives. So. Um, those are, and the last piece that they recommended um, was a th general threat assessment process that each school has. Um, and that includes both when, uh, uh, when uh, weapons and or there are threats at school, um, like how do we, uh, how do we respond at any given time? We have a team in place from a principal, school counselor, school psychologist, and perhaps even school police officer present to help to address these issues. That there's a procedures for both reporting, when do we report this? And we have rules set up in, in terms of making decisions about reporting. Um, how are we going to respond to it? And how are we going to collect information over time? Because if we're going to be tracking some of these traits that we see in, see in shooters, we need to have records and this information shouldn't get lost. We need to have access to that. And if we start to see too many of these signs and this person is not necessarily following up with mental health recommendations, seeing the school counselor, then we may take action to try to um, maybe more strongly require something uh, of that student. So those are some of the recommendations that came out of that. What do you think? I, I mean, it's, uh, I think, an interesting uh, route to, to go with that. Um, I, as you know, being the libertarian that I am, I'd, I'd like to see more being done by the schools and less, uh, you know, less of it being, um, you know, direct in, involvement from the government. So uh, I like the idea of um, the counselors themselves who are there at the school being the ones uh you know, doing a lot of this because they're the ones actually interacting with the kids uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, some bureaucrats who are making decisions that don't know anything about the kids uh, that they're making decisions for. So anything, again, like you're saying, that we can get more localized and more actually 
dealing with these kids on a one-on-one personal basis, I think is great. And since we're talking largely about public schools, we need to be aware that they're funded by the state. Uh, And as a result, you know, uh, if they don't receive funding, there's no way they can provide this. So at some level, this means uh, like, what do we do? How do we access that money and where does it come from? Um, I'm not here to answer that. That's not my specialty, but uh, we need money. These schools have to have that money. They're being asked to do tremendous amounts of things uh, without adequate resources. Anything? What do you think? I like that idea of trying to help these kids who are showing signs instead of just punishing them because that just tends to make things worse. Yeah. 15 seconds, Dr. Steiner. Anything in closing? 15 seconds? No, I just pre- appreciate your invitation to have me come and share this information. Hopefully this has been impactful for some of your listeners and uh, to encourage them to open up and listen to other sources from other from other. Uh, places, news, I think that's helpful in uh, coming to some conclusions and moving forward, empowering people to start to make changes locally in their schools with their kids, things along those lines. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. Red flag laws don't, they don't, don't take away the car, the knife, the bat, et cetera, just the gun. Gun control advocates tend to focus only on mental health and not gang violence and opiates and other drugs. Don't forget when more gun control laws go into effect, they, they will affect the poor and the people of color. And in Austin, we have seen evil people do evil things like the rock thrower, Austin Bomber, the guy that drove his car through South by Southwest. We need to stop bullying and, and just be a little more compassionate to others and their feelings. We need to love each other. As always, more guns equals less crime. Go out and buy yourself a gun. You've been listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven! Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.